0: Doses. you dosen Dosing. Grilled cheese. Are you hungry? You got your grilled cheese. Grilled cheese here and there. Got some good grilled cheese. Hey, you. Look good in one of these hats. Mushrooms. Need some meat? Socks. Underwear. T-shirts. T-shirts and hats here. a treat. Get some socks. T-shirts and hats.
1: you need T-shirts and hats? Lenny, why do you T-shirt still do hats. this? Do what? Hey man, hey, yeah, how much for the Moldavite and the t-shirt? This one? No, no, not that t-shirt, the other t-shirt. Or this one? No, the other t-shirt. Which one do you want? Yeah, that one, man, are you high? Ah, okay, that one, got it.
0: This is what I mean. This, like walking around, hanging out, doing anything but just go inside and wait for the boys to come on. I mean, it's not like you blend in around here.
1: What, large black men covered in tattoos and wearing African traditional religious jewelry isn't something you would call common on lots? Uh, no. Leslie, the truth is I grew up here, and what can I do? I mean, I can't quit Shakedown Street.
0: I appreciate that, but didn't everything that ever happened to you with the prison industrial complex start right here on Shakedown?
1: The truth is something fishy is shaking on Shakedown Street The prison industrial complex and the new plantation are alive and well, right here on this corner I love. From the suspension of the war on drugs, eight hours at a time, just for the luxury of upwardly mobile white liberals, and this phenomenon that occurs from stadium to stadium. The unequal ways criminal justice is meted out during those shows, combined with the disproportionate charges, jail times, and fines black people face in those very same communities after the band leaves town for the exact same crimes, often the exact same drugs in the exact same zip code. Preach. It is clear, Shakedown Streets and its politics are a microcosm of the larger systemic issues in this country. Black fans recognize Shakedown Street for what it is, Leslie. It's the trap. Trap, trap, trap. Welcome to Blackberry Jam, supported by Ben and Jerry's, where I, Lenny Duncan. And I, Leslie Mack. Pull back the curtain on how jam band culture and black liberation work intersect.
0: Each episode, we explore stories of Black fans and envision a jam band community with liberation, love, and fish tickets by mail for all. On today's episode, we are talking about the politics of Shakedown. Before I jump in with my usual analysis and information drop, instead, I'm gonna let Lenny take the lead. It is an organizing principle to let those directly impacted by something tell their stories. So we're going to start there. Lenny, take it away.
1: Shakedown Street's always such an interesting place for me. I really believe it's a place where the carnival meets the psychedelic, meets the old ways of travelers that have been passed on for generations in many cultures, meets like this sort of like temporal autonomous zone with its own culture, its own economy. For me, I know a tour's good when the same buses are parking in the same order every show and Shakedown Street looks the same every tour. You know mm. what I mean? Like, yep. like that's, that, that's what I know. That's when I know it's a good tour. But also Shakedown Street's like where like everything that ever happened to me with the prison industrial complex started. I was 13 years old, my first show like we talked about in the first episode, what I don't talk about in that really kind of funny, you know, like opening bit we did for the beginning of the season, because I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be a Debbie Downer, was that those kids found me basically doing sex work in the neighborhood in Philadelphia, trying to eat, you know, and like really kind of showed me a new way of life of like, hey, man, you don't got to live like that. And I was really in love with the community, you know what I mean? And, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old, seeing Jerry Garcia, traveling around, no one's hassling me for my ID or, you know, anything. Everyone's bringing me along for the ride and they're talking to me about love, peace, and one human family. Mm. How enticing. Right, it sounded amazing and it was for a while. It really was and still is to me. That's the funny thing. It's still a place I go to several dozen times a year when the world's not melting. I am a person who has been diagnosed with ADHD and now I'm studying for a PhD. Now I have a kind of bestseller out and another book out that's doing all right and some other stuff going on. Now I have this podcast, but I started to get arrested for simple things, just hanging out with kids who were doing the same stuff as me And for the life of me, Leslie, I was so innocent. I didn't know why I was the first one the cops searched. Like, like, you know, like, I didn't know, like, I was the one when they would separate everyone in the car. They'd be like, yo, do your parents know where you are? And then they'd talk to me and they'd be like, get against the fucking car. And I'd be like, what? You know what I mean? (laughs) And they'd be like, he just had attitude. And then my friends would be like, yo, bro, we were fine. Like, we had good energy the whole time. No one ever bothered us. We've always had a great time, right? Even though like they're still victims of the same system and eventually ended up going to prison and all that stuff too, right? But they can't see it because, you know, they're white and, you know, it's all bullshit and, you know, stop protesting, all that stuff. The other part of that is, Leslie, you know the work I do in academia right now. You know some of the stuff I write. We've worked together. And I started that work at 35 because I wasn't allowed to get student loans because I sold an eighth of fucking weed on Hate Street. Not even an eighth, I sold a haf. because I'm a real Hate Street kid. <laughs> I, no way was I going to sell a Taurus 3.5 grams. Oh, no, no, no. They got 1.7. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yep. That stuff totally changed the trajectory of my life. Did it change the trajectory of other kids' lives on tour? Yes, 100% it did. And that's the thing, like the kids that you love on tour that you treat like pets pay consequences for carrying that scene from town to town. I took a black woman to a show this weekend and we'll talk about it later. But the first thing she said was, why are the sheriffs just standing there while everyone just snorts Molly and does whatever they want? We were in Berkeley. She lives in the East Bay over in East Oakland. She was like, what is this? What is it, indeed? It's this dual reality of the fact that everything I know about traveling, about the way I live my life, everything that I love, that I know it's worth it to run out on a fool's errand to see a band at the edge of tomorrow and think about liberation while dancing in front of the empire. Everything that I believe in happened on Shakedown Street, and conversely, Every person I met and every scene that I started that got me in trouble started on Shakedown Street. I lost my daughter. I lost my education. I lost my opportunities to really maybe overcome some of the issues. You know, like, what if someone would have found little 16-year-old Lenny and be like, dude, you're not Neo Cassidy reborn and also... <laughs> You just have ADHD. And if you just take this pill, you might be able to go to school and like not have to live in your bus. There's a
0: cognitive dissonance between what you mentioned earlier about the feeling of the love and the peace and the community. And then we use record scratches so much on the show because that is the experience we have of everything swimming along. And then all of a sudden it's like a slap in the face.
1: I'll tell you like the, the worst time, Leslie, I got arrested for LSD in Pennsylvania, but I sold like two hits of LSD to a, oh God, what sheriff was that? That motherfucker was so, he had such a hard on that day. I knew he was a cop. My friend was in a bad situation and I stepped in. Schwanksville, Pennsylvania at the Pennsylvania Folk Festival, listening to white people. They're like, oh, it's such a mellow scene. There's no hippies there, but it's a bluesgrass festival. You'll fit in. Right. It's like inviting me to a fucking Klan rally. So we go out there. You know, this kid's in a bad situation. I intervene. The agent's hella fucking pushy. I end up selling him two hits just to get him the fuck out of our face. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, here I am arrested in Schwanksville, Pennsylvania. And this is how I missed the birth of my daughter, by the way. And I'm 19 years old. And I just went out there to make some extra money, maybe go to a show and like maybe pay some rent for, you know, like I was working full time. Same thing everyone else does. Maybe I'll sell some t-shirts. Maybe I'll do whatever. And in fact, I didn't go out there to sell anything illicit. Again, my friend was in a bad situation. I had two in my pocket and I was like, here, dude, take this, get the fuck out of our face. I remember clearly because I was working. I was a volunteer that year and I was working the troll bridge which is what they call it if you've ever been to the Pennsylvania Folk Festival. I worked the Troll Bridge and helped some of the artists get to the stage all weekend. This person walked past with this mirror as I was crying. This is like stuff white people do that they think is esoterical and spiritual. And it was this really beautiful thing, like gold fingerlay, like mirror that they were you know, obviously taking to the stage for one of the artists. And the motherfucking stagehand stopped as I was cuffed and sitting in the dirt with the mirror in front of me so I could look at myself cry. Oh, Lenny. And I don't know what he thought he was doing in that moment. Like what lesson he was conveying to a 19-year-old kid who had spent six years just trying to scrape Without America killing him and suddenly found himself with a child in like six months. I don't know what that person thought they were doing. I don't know what swami or fucking yoga fucking school they sat under that made them fucking want to do that in that moment. Because that's the bullshit that happens on tour. People want to impart spiritual lessons when they don't fucking see whole fucking segments of reality. The only way you can get into the esoteric is to root yourself in the now, you fucking weirdos. And instead, I get this picture of myself sitting in the dirt, just crying, you know. And if you read my book, United States of Grace, shameless self-plug, I write about, you know, how I found out my daughter's name and that it was a girl. And it was a letter my mom wrote because she was strung out, but she hand wrote like a nine page letter and like made it into a card. Um. Take your time. You know, and um, uh, she's just such a good woman. You know, um, I got to spend some real good years with her. In the end, before she passed, but you know, um, she uh, painted it, you know, and put sparkles on it, mm. wrote her name for me, and um, you know, and I just went to a show like everyone else, and. Thought maybe I'd make a couple extra bucks while volunteering and I wasn't doing anything illicit. I volunteered and was like selling t-shirts and bullshit because it's the fucking folk festival. Just got into a bad way, you know, and saw someone who was going to be in a much worse way if I didn't get them out of there. Mm. And, you know, I made a choice. Right. And it wasn't based on race. Like all those people in that situation who would have been fucked would have been are white and probably would have been better off at the end of the day but I'm the kind of person that when I see shit like that goes down, I don't fucking walk away, no matter who you are. Like, I don't care about race in that situation. I care about the fact that the armed wing of capitalism is invading the scene. That's what I care about. And there's a ton of people who are going to listen to this story and they're going to say, well, I'm white, and that happened to me. But that doesn't make it okay. Like, it's so weird to me. That's people's defense. Like, well, I'm white. And the prison industrial complex ruin my life so thus racism doesn't exist it's insane it's like okay well can you admit that the prison industrial complex is killing us all can you admit that there shouldn't be ops on the scene can you admit that you have benefited from the scene while never giving to a bail fund while never checking up on a kid Well, never wondering why those folks who used to be on tour that you heard got arrested disappeared. You never even figured out their real name to like send them like a letter, homie. I'm not talking about the kids on tour. All the kids on tour do that. Uh, Shout out to Ash. Ash uh, has been keeping the family newsletter to everyone in the GD family in prison by herself. We're going to probably bring her on one day or like shout out her her thing you know and ash has like been doing that forever right she's the only one who writes a newsletter and sends them sneakers and books and all this for 15 years one woman with like five kids or some shit you know what i mean all by herself and we've all benefited from that scene we, we love the fact that those kids are there we love the fact that if we want something recreational, that it's there. We love the fact that the t-shirts are there. We love the fact that grilled cheese is there. We love the fact that there's all these cool and innovative stuff. We love trading for stones and shit, but we never think about the cost to shake down street and we don't reinvest in it. And that's why the kids change every five, six years, except for the smart ones who never do shit. And just sell water, right? That's why that happens. But we never take time to investigate that these are real people's lives who have been impacted. And no, not every story's as sad as mine that was turned around by Grateful Dead tour, which is a white narrative because that's not really what happened. I'm me wherever the fuck I go and anywhere I would have ended up, I would have been great at it. But but at the end of the fucking day, like I learned so many lessons from this scene that it's hard for me to walk around it and not be like, when I see kids doing the same shit that I used to do at the same age and I know the consequences and people want to pretend like it's not related to the shit we've seen over the last couple of years, well, that, that infuriates me. And, I, and I'll stop with that.
0: Well, let me ask you a few questions. So what broke your heart about Shakedown? And, and by that, I mean... What part of the fire you had for that portion of the scene
1: has burnt out for you? I can literally remember the day it happened. It was uh, 1998 when I realized I fucked up with fish and I should have been there the whole time. It was further festival. The day that my heart broke, I was drunk and doing no better than anyone else. I've been eating pills. I was walking down Shakedown Street. I bought like all these, like, you remember when the gold stickers for the BMWs came out, the very first ones, ones—yeah, remember they were like $50 a piece? Mm -hmm. Me and my homie bought a roll and we were sticking them on our hoodies and drinking fucking whiskey and starting fights because we were real bitter after Jerry died. Sure. Just like any tourist who was like, hey, you got any drugs? We were like, fuck off! And we would just like spit fucking whiskey at them, you know? Sad kids who had just lost their daddy in their minds. I'm walking down Shakedown that day And um, I watched one kid fall out from heroin. And then I watched another kid fall out from heroin. And then I walked around to like get away from it. Because like I was trying to get away from like any sort of drugs like that. Yeah. And I went into someone's bus and they were shooting up. So it was like this like weird. Like I did the loop on shakedown. And one kid fell at the bottom of shakedown. Another kid fell at the top of shakedown. I turned the corner to go to someone's bus that's in the cut. And they're getting high in there. And I was like. What the fuck have I spent the last three, four years doing? That was the day my heart broke and I broke bad after that. And then I was a nefarious character on Shakedown Street. I was a guy who always owed people money. I was a guy who always had a fucking scam and something going on because I just leaned into that. Because it seemed like there was no way out. Where was I going to go? Like, there was no straight culture for me. I had been living in, like, rainbow gatherings and people's land and on tour for since I was 13. I had no fucking idea what to do with, like, people were like, well, you could go to college. I was like, what the? How the fuck do you do that? That was the day my heart broke. What breaks my heart now is when I see kids in that same trap and because they've repackaged it, and they make it look a little bit more fly. Right. You know what I'm saying? They don't realize. It's cooler. Yeah, it's cooler now. Everything's good. You know, states are, like, letting you micro-dose. It's no big deal. Motherfucker, like, yo, they, they're not playing fucking games. They're giving out football yards. I was at a Phil show, and I didn't get to meet the guy, but a friend of a friend, he had just gotten out from Operation Dead End. That's, like, 1989 or some shit. Yeah, And he was at the show. It was 2021. And, and, and this was a white dude, right? Why does that make it okay? How does that prove that the system that was started to catch slaves hasn't gotten out of control and is ruining your fucking life now? It's like, well, we keep the wolf around, you know, to scare people away. And it eats children every once in a while. But we're good with that because it keeps the other things away. Are you kidding me?
0: It's a price that folks are willing to pay, whether they're conscious of it or not, because it's a
1: willing ignorance. And here's the thing is that, wow, it's just all fun and games for eight hours at a time. What you guys don't know is that like these fucking these criminal organizations, I mean, these police organizations, (laughs) these police organizations continue to investigate these kids. And so they'll follow these kids around on a whole fucking tour over nothing. Over nothing at the end of the day. You know what I mean? Over some kids getting some medicine, some other kids having some fun, and you not liking it in your county. And it's all bullshit, man. It used to be probable cause to pull you over in Nevada if you had a fucking steal your face sticker. That's insane. It was paraphernalia so the fact that we accept these things in the scene and that we're like, all right, everything's cool. Cause I got into the parking lot. And now that I'm pulling out of the parking lot, I have to worry that my entire life is about to be fucking wrecked. I like to do it. Cause I get to live how I want to live for eight hours at a time, but that doesn't change the realities that it's ensconced. in.
0: Well, let's stop there. We're going to pay some bills. We'll be right back. to hear from you fellow blackfish fans give us a call at 888 fan jam that's 888 p-h-a-n-j-a-m and leave us a message with your most beautiful your weirdest or your most difficult story from the scene and we might just play it on the show 888 fan jam
1: We're back.
0: Yeah. You know, I wanted to spend a little time kind of breaking down this idea. You know, we've mentioned the prison industrial complex before. And, you know, in truth, the, the entire endeavor of slavery was one large prison industrial complex. You know, it made human beings, black human beings, the capital in capitalism. And I mean with the big C. And it's what the wealth of the so called richest country in the world is built upon.
1: Does that make the kids in the scene the capital of the scene?
0: Absolutely. They are what gets churned in and profits come out the other side.
1: Beyond race.
0: Beyond race. Beyond race. Because capitalism actually doesn't care about race. White supremacy does, and capitalism is a product of it, but but capitalism doesn't care about any of those things. And the only thing that supersedes it is white supremacy. You know, when people say green rules everything, I said, actually, it doesn't because white supremacy will shit on capitalism every time it can.
1: Who looked at Donald and said oh that's a sound fucking investment what businessman who's ever been i'm talking to my east coasters out there yeah is there any contractor in the philadelphia atlantic city area who's ever been paid by donald (laughs) ever to look at him and say that's a good investment for my money no that's not what you said nope you said that's a good investment to make sure these motherfuckers don't change shit
0: exactly it's preservation of the status quo which is white supremacy. But, you know, when I talk about policing and history, I tend to always want to kind of zero in on the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. And this was a federal act established precedents for law enforcement officials to be required to arrest suspected, escaped, enslaved Black people. And what this did was it set up an institutional focus on Black and Brown bodies. And so from that act... Slave patrols were born, and modern-day law enforcement foundations were laid. Both visually, there's absolutely no way to look at the star of the slave patrol badge and not compare them directly to the badges worn by law enforcement across the country in 2021. But
1: specifically sheriff's department. Absolutely. Sheriffs specifically. The sheriffs were the slave patrols, and they changed the name after 1865 to sheriffs. Yep. But more important, the tactics, the tactics
0: that this Fugitive Slave Act... They have been specifically aimed at Black people for centuries. And I want to talk about a few examples because I think a lot of people think, oh, this was such a long time ago and there's no connection to what's happening now. And it really is not true. So let's talk about this 1850s Fugitive Slave Act. I'm going to take some direct language from it because I think it's really helpful for people to understand. So here's a quote. It allowed the monitoring of the rigid past requirements for Blacks traversing the countryside. So what do we get from that? Today we get disproportionate search of vehicles driven by BIPOC people, despite all reports showing this to be completely ineffective. Also from the, the act, we have, quote, they were allowed to break up large gatherings and assemblies of black people.
1: Yeah, and that's all because of Denmark Vesey, Nat Turner, and what they saw happening in Haiti, because Haiti was successful. Absolutely. They, they, threw every, they threw everyone the fuck out, and they're like, that shit is not happening in Florida, bro. Absolutely.
0: And what do we see from that? We see more than four black youths gathered are now a gang. We see a deliberate campaign to discourage youth protests by labeling them. Not as protests at all, but as unlawful gatherings, right?
1: Yeah, my dad was a victim of that in Philadelphia directly by fucking uh, Mayor Rizzo. Yo, Mayor Rizzo, I hope you're burning in hell. You know, like, Rizzo did that, and my dad was a victim of that. Like, one time, you know, he got into a fight where a kid stabbed him in the eye with a bottle. He lost an eye, and he was just like a kid who got picked on in the neighborhood, kind of. He was involved in some shit. But like anytime three or four of his friends were there, even the day they tried to help him, the cops ran up on him like it was fucking gang activity. Let's see. Quote,
0: visited and searched slave quarters randomly. I don't know anything that describes search and frisk more than that exact quote from the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act.
1: Except for the desired result, which is Brianna Taylor. Absolutely. Well, I'm just saying the desired result from these is our death, is anyone's death. You know what I mean? But specifically, Black and Brown people is the roots of this.
0: They were allowed to, quote, inflict impromptu punishments. Hmm. Sounds a lot like the extrajudicial killings of Black men and women.
1: I live in Portland, Oregon, up where up until 1998, it was legal to beat a Black person in the streets on the books. No one did it, but on the books, you could whip a Black man in a public setting.
0: And the last one I want to mention is, quote, as occasion arose, suppress insurrections, end quote. So what we get from that now is we have this military-style use of force Versus protesters in Ferguson, in Portland, in Baltimore, in Oakland, in Cleveland, in Chicago, in Philadelphia, everywhere that you see us organizing against police violence, we are considered insurrectionists, even though we're fighting for peace and life and liberty. And that tells you everything you need to know about policing in America. And again, this is a long standing historical context for the policing of black and brown people that ultimately is intended to end with our death demise or our being sucked into this industrial complex that then again puts us back as capital with the capital C.
1: That's the same system that's weaponized against you every show. That's the same system that ruined the great went for your homie. That's the same system that ruined dicks two years ago for your homegirl. Yep. That's the same system that you are fucking bugging out about when you drive through Utah on your way to a Cali show from Colorado. That is the same system. It doesn't matter if you care about our communities at the end of the day, to be real honest with you. At the end of the day, white supremacy and capitalism is a dying predator, and it is cornered. And it will eat your children if it can't get ours. And I have to tell you that black people have made it pretty clear, we're going to try to make sure that it doesn't get ours. And then when that predator's hungry, it's going to come looking. And so that's the same system that's weaponized against you. And that's why it's important in context for you to know the history of where it comes from. Not so you can join the ranks necessarily. We don't need any saviors flying in, but we certainly need people aware of their place in it. Mm-hmm how they can contribute to possibly pushing back against this thing and maybe not get their asses kicked by it for our, you know, tour heads out there. So here's some questions I have for you. What do you say in light of the fact that the system is weaponized against BiPAC folks? What is the responsibility of just the average fan? You know, the infamous customer or Custy, as some of the uh, impolite would say on Shakedown Street. What is... Their responsibility, because they benefit, right? The, the thing that they do in between grad school, work, and like raising kids, that magical place they visit is actually supported by bodies, lives, and terrible things that have happened to tons of my friends. So what is their responsibility?
0: I think it's interesting you use that word responsibility, because there's this notion, and I think it's a real... Insidious construct of whiteness, right? There's no collective responsibility in the construct of whiteness. In fact, it's actually devoid of it. It's all about individuality. So when something bad happens, right, let's say it's a shooting or or some sort of attack or something, Black people collectively go, oh, please don't make it be a Black person because we have collective responsibility for each other as a culture.
1: Yo, know, the same thing just happened here locally, where I says the vice president of the NAACP, the sheriff who killed Genoa and possibly Kevin Peterson, or one of the sheriffs who like heads up that squad that's been basically, we can't catch them in the act, so we'll just shoot them. That's been their policy. Unfortunately, the detective was killed, you know, who, who heads up that squad. And, you know, I, I don't want to see anyone get killed because those officers are victims of the same system, too. My first thought was this morning was like, God, I hope it's not a black person or an activist who's been on the street with us. And like it wasn't that feeling of collective responsibility of not only for the small black community in Vancouver, Washington, which is really small and oppressed and in Portland, Oregon, but you know, for the activists who've who've been accomplices, not allies. They've been accomplices in this work. I held my breath this morning and like me and the president of the chapter, Jasmine Tolbert, the sense of relief this morning, Leslie, as we were texting each other at six in the morning.
0: And so, yeah, so when when we talk about this idea of responsibility in this community of majority white people, I think that's the thing I want them to really sit with, is why when bad things happen within this scene to people that are part of the scene, why are they able to keep it at arm's length? And disconnect themselves so easily, so readily, without even a second thought, so naturally. Like walk right
1: past. Like walk right past. Like I remember in the 90s when a cop grabbed someone, if they were by themselves on shakedown, we got the person away from the cop, and then we got the people that the cop was grabbing away, and then we all scattered. And there's none of those tactics anymore.
0: None, none of that. So that's that's the first thing I would mention is the idea of responsibility. What does collective responsibility mean? To white people generally and to white people within this scene. What does it mean? How do you define it? How do you spread it? And how do you ensure you bring more people into this idea of collective responsibility? Because we have to take collective responsibility for each other if liberation is going to be possible.
1: All you have to do is like learn your rights and keep your cell phone. And when you see someone being arrested in the scene, you start taping and say, officer, what are you doing right now? What's happening? Who is this person? Can you identify yourself? Can you give me your number so I can call some people for you? Oh, Hold on for a second, officer. Use those white hippie powers for some good. I mean, you do a lot of good in the world already, but now you can do it here. And it's not as scary as you think. And there's lots of people who will teach you. It's also less scary the more of us that do it.
0: That's where the collective part comes in. So you you gave a scenario just now, and it may be scary for that first white woman to put her phone up, but when seven more pop up, the fear goes down on our side, and the fear increases on the other. And so when I say collective responsibility, that's what I'm talking about, is that we have to work in concert with each other, no pun intended, in order to break down these systems.
1: Yeah, no, 100%. Like that's what I've seen in Portland on the ground here is that. You know, when something happens in the scene, we have public safety teams, we have people, we have folks, the average citizen just steps in now. And they're just like, hey, what's happening here? What's going on? They de-escalate the situation, they get the person's information, they follow up with them after they're actually arrested, you know, make sure they at least have some lunch money. Like, these sort of things you can do and you can learn as everyday skills. If revolution's ever going to happen, it has to feel like fucking Tuesday, like I said. And the only way we can do that is if we take responsibility for our own community. And our community on wheels, but we still have to take responsibility for it. Here's the deeper question. What is a just solution for anyone like me who's been arrested in the so-called war on drugs?
0: There are some technical, you know, musts. One, anyone that's still in jail needs to be obviously released. We need records expunged. We need any legal barriers to them voting, to them getting public housing, to them getting student loans. We need all of those kinds of things lifted and moved away. But beyond that, there's an emotional cost that we have to actually account for. There is a loss of humanity, dignity, and connection to community that we have to actually address at both the individual and at the community level. And so those are the things that I constantly come back to. It's what organizers talk about all the time. You know, when we talk about re-entry, that's what we're discussing. We're discussing someone who has been put into an institution that's meant to degrade them, meant to make them feel as less than human. And how do we create conditions for that person to build themselves back up again? And I use the word build themselves back up because this is not something you can do for people you can support them, you can provide resources for them, and you can ensure that there's an environment and a soft place for them to land. But this is work that they have to do for themselves. And we have to ensure that we give them the things they need to be able to do that.
1: And stop using the fucking magical Negro narrative like me. Just because like I got off the streets and worked my way to a PhD, that is fucking, that's all luck. That happened by random chance, man. This idea of the exceptional American runs on, on both sides as just someone who, like, uh, has paid some consequences for this shit. Like, not only did I have to find the will to fight for myself, but I also, I had no soft landing place. And, and, and I'll, I'll, you know, I got a homie right now in Colorado who I was supposed to see and when I was going out to see Billy and the kids and it didn't work out. And, you know, he's been in and out of the prison industrial complex. You know, he can't see it, man. Like his whole humanity's been stripped and he's like, "I'm you're you're a racist. You're out there with those Black Lives Matter people." But a bunch of my homies from like back on tour think I'm on some other shit. And it's like the way that they've been treated, it's the way their lives have been stripped from them. It's the way that their humanity's been stripped from them despite race. That's why I do the shit I do. And they don't get it, right? So they're, you know, they feel like I'm always stirring the pot and I'm like, "Man, holy fuck, man, you, you could have been great. You are great, but you could have been so much greater. And they, and they took that from you. The idea of hope being gone, this idea
0: of, of an actual system that's meant to not just strip dignity, not just strip humanity, but to actually sap hope from human
1: beings.
0: I don't know. To me, it's the definition of evil. It is the definition of evil.
1: A hundred percent. Last question: What does abolition mean for this community? That word gets thrown around on Twitter like it's like it's a damn frisbee. What does it mean?
0: Well, as a devout abolitionist, the concept of abolition is a really complex one in practice, but in its definition, it's very simple. It's the idea that punishment should never be at the root of what we do as a society. And that criminalizing behavior never leads to a more just society, nor does it help anyone. So much of our society is built around punishment, judgment, and crime, and criminalizing things. And I don't even just mean you know, from jails and, and from the prison industrial complex, but we can talk about this on an interpersonal level, about how corporal punishment for children is based in punishment, about how church structures are based in punishment. And so I really, this is what I would really call this community to do, is to think about how punishment drives your decision making, drives the things that you decide to do, drives the things you support or don't support, and what would it look like to not do that, to not have punishment as the center of your decision-making processes. That is at the heart of abolition.
1: Abolition work is supposed to be what it's all about. I know abolition can scare some folks as a concept, but as far as I'm concerned, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. And freedom for me means freedom for all. So I really appreciate you laying down your wisdom. Next episode, we know we've been kind of heavy. So we're going to get to the state of Fish Nation. What happened? on 2021 tour what's going on with fish right now and what do we have to look forward to who knows but we'll see you next episode the state of fish nation leslie we are as always honored by you dropping your wisdom anything else you want to say to these folks before we let them go defund the police see y'all next time
0: That is it for this episode of Blackberry Jams. Our production team includes Jocelyn Gonzalez, Pedro Rafael Rosado, Ian Fox, and Jason Saldana from PRX Productions.
1: And we're brought to you with support of the fine folks at Ben and Jerry's.
0: You can check us out on socials at Blackberry Fans. That's P-H-A-N-S. You can catch me on Twitter at Leslie Matt, And Lenny, where can
1: folks find you? I am Lenny A. Duncan everywhere.
0: Remember to subscribe and leave us a review in your favorite podcast app. Tell a friend about the show. It really helps us out. I'm Leslie. And I'm Lenny. And this is Blackberry Jams.
1: Presented to you by Ben and Jerry's.